Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. First Monday of May in the year 2021. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to the House of All Marine Radio. Are you wearing your mask? Got to wear it a lot less places now, folks. Got to tell you that. For those of us that have been vaccinated, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I did a lot, a lot of yard work over the weekend. Yep, that's what I did, yard work. And I like working like that, like just like I like cleaning. Not sure why, mindless tasks I enjoy. They occupy my brain. Simple task in front of me. Let's pull the weeds. So that's how Saturday started. It started with um, let's pull the weeds. And I did. And then the weed pulling got me to the side of my house that's on the other side of my house. Okay, so you go out, you go out my, um, you go out through the dining room out to the patio. There's a TV out there. There's a couch out there. There's a table out there. There's um, my Smith machine to work out with. There's my bike that I ride out there. 
So there's fitness stuff out there. Then you walk through that. You actually hang a left. Okay, let me let me picture this for you. So picture a rectangle, okay? On the long side of the rectangle. Yeah, and then picture that rectangle emptying into another rectangle. So it's like an L, okay? At the corner of the L, the inside corner of the L, okay? That's a door, okay? The open area of the L, right? That's the patio. Okay, so you walk out of the living room or the dining room, and then you're in the patio. Okay, if you hang a left, then you walk past the top of the uh, L shape, rectangles, right? That's the house. And that would be the lawn, the backyard lawn. Now, if you walk around, there's a walkway, and you walk around the top of the L, then there's more lawn. So the lawn forms an L around the house. Okay? So on that, on the far side of that L, okay, against the fence, there was a bunch of weeds. So that was really the task. So I start pulling weeds. And I think it's going to take me, it's going to take me not very long, maybe an hour to pull all the weeds. And I don't know how long it takes me. <clears throat> then I think, I look at one of the trees there, and I think they're kind of cypress trees. They're about six feet tall, because I've cut them. And uh, they're kind of disgusting trees. That's what they are, cypress trees. And people use them for kind of barrier things. That's what the person who lived there planted them for. And so one was dying, and I thought, well, I'm going to cut that thing out. And so I dug it up, went to Home Depot, bought some plants, and uh, planted the plants. And the plants make me happy because I look out my kitchen window, and I see the plants now. That makes me happy. So then I decide, you know, I've got to get this ladder hung up and I've got to these chairs. Patrick made one of them. I got to get these chairs made. I mean, I got to get the chairs hung up because they kind of lean against the fence. So I built something on the fence. Yeah. Out of nothing. Out of a couple, out of a piece of wood. So I cut it. I, I screwed it into the fence, and now the fence, the, the ladder hangs, the chairs hang. Got that done. And then kind of the last thing was I have a, a, a orange, lemon, lime, and apple tree in the backyard. Yeah. And I had, I thought, you know, I need to trim those trees because I kind of do it annually. But it's a pain, right? Branch trimming. And let me tell you, branch trimming is, as I said, a pain. But the real pain is, after you cut the branch off, you got to go through and you got to cut out the little branch, sub-branches, so the thing doesn't take up a whole lot of room, right? And you can, you know, you can pile it on a tarp and then tie the ends and then take it and throw it out and or whatever you do. So I spent yesterday, right, 
not only cutting branches, but then sub-cutting branches so that they would be able to be movable and not this gigantic pile of crap that you got to move. So anyway, that's what I did all weekend. So that was my task. So yard work. And as I said, I like doing that. The, um, I want to talk to, I want to talk about the news a little bit. There's some stories that caught my eye, but I want, I want to mention them before we get to the news. A lot of stuff in the news, some interesting stuff. Um, some interesting stuff. Interesting story coming out of New Zealand. Right, and I'll play about a minute of this is the um, Prime Minister of New Zealand, a woman by the name of <clears throat> Jacinda Ardern, okay, and so she's essentially saying it's becoming more and more difficult to reconcile our differences with the Chinese as the Chinese use their economy to blackmail people uh, around the world, right? That's what they do. So, interestingly enough, the Australians are the first nation that have really pushed back on this hard and told the Chinese to essentially to go to hell. So, um, so this is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, talking about China. And it will not have escaped the attention of anyone here that as China's role in the world grows and changes, the differences between our systems and the interests and values that shape those systems are becoming harder to reconcile. This is a challenge that we and many other countries across the Indo-Pacific region, but also in Europe and other regions, are also grappling with. As a significant power, the way that China treats its partners is important for us. And we will continue to promote the things that we believe in and support the rules-based system that underpins our collective well-being. Given our two countries' different histories, different worldviews, and different political and legal systems, New Zealand and China are going to take different perspectives on important issues. We will continue to work through these through in a consistent manner, as we have always done. But as Minister Mahuta said last month, we need to acknowledge that there are some things on which China and New Zealand do not, cannot, and will not agree. So that's interesting on on the heels of uh, Australia telling China, yeah, your Belt and Road Initiative, not so much. The, another story in the news relative to, to Australia and uh and China today is that the Chinese are reviewing a contract or the Australians are reviewing a, uh, a contract with a Chinese company to run the port of Darwin. Yeah. Darwin, where the Marine Rotational Force makes its living, right? So Australia supposedly is taking a look at that contract to see if it will, um, it will do anything. Uh, invalidate the contract and say, yeah, not so much. So that in the news, interesting, right? Um, another story that caught my eye is I've talked to you about the documentary, so- The Social Dilemma, 
right? If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on Netflix. And and it, and really what it chronicles is how big technology, big social media use your cell phone to crawl down your brainstem, to influence you, to addict you, okay? Headline, the social dilemma filmmakers say social media companies have polluted our information ecosystem. Um, Jeff Orlowski, the director of the award-winning Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, used to be an avid social media user. Not anymore. Around 2017, he says he started becoming alarmed about manipulative design techniques employed by social media. With his documentary collaborators, he set out to illustrate the way social media platforms have harmed society. We just knew there was something really important here, Orlowski said, explained during an appearance on Deadline Contenders Television, documentary plus unscripted awards season event. Let me see if they have um, some audio here. If they do, um, I'll play because it's interesting because what these people, you know, kind of zero in on is our algorithms, right? They zero in on algorithms. Uh, so the social the social dilemma zeroes in on algorithms created by Facebook, Google, Twitter, and other such companies that push content at users to keep them glued to the platforms. One effective way to engage people, these companies discovered, is to feed users a diet, a diet of conspiracy theories, misinformation, and other material that stoke outrage. It's good for the platforms because the more people they reach and retain, the more ads they can sell, but the effect has been bad for democracy, social relations, and even mental health of users. Quote, they figured out how to reverse engineer each and every one of us, Orlowski said. They did that really, really well, and it's been extremely profitable for them. It turns out that those things, those rabbit holes that we end up falling into, can often be polarizing. No two people are being fed the same stories and content. The algorithms customize an individual's feed based on previous searches, likes, content, engagement, etc. Social media users can become mired in feedback loop of material that reinforces their preconceived ideas or exposes them to more radical content. And so the article goes. Um, yeah, you should check that out. And in terms of, you know, I, I social media is, is horrible. It's horrible. And, and these are the companies that are profiting off that technology. And then what's crazy is that they're using that power, right, and the billions of dollars they make to attempt to inf they attempt to influence policy and democracy so they can continue to do what they do so that caught my eye over the weekend um this caught my eye over the weekend
These are just things that caught my eye. The U.S. Navy destroys a target with a drone swarm and sends a message to China. This is a China. This is out of Forbes. The U.S. Navy has destroyed a surface vessel with a swarm of drones for the first time. The strike disclosed in a briefing on April 26 was carried out during the unmanned systems integration battle problem off the coast of California. The swarm attack, which was directed against a target identified by an unmanned surface vessel, was one of several unmanned systems teaming operations during the exercise. These included a combination of unmanned aircraft and boats identifying as enemy vessels that was engaged with a SM-6 anti-ship missile from the guided missile destroyer John Finn. Quote, our goal for this exercise is to evaluate these unmanned systems and how they can actually team with manned systems, said Rear Admiral John Aiken. So we have manned and unmanned swarming. The swarm has another advantage over conventional missiles. A swarm of 50 drones can attack 50 small targets, such as fast attack craft or unmanned surface vessels. The report fails to disclose how the swarm was launched. The swarm may come from an aircraft. In 2020, the Navy revealed that super swarm testing included the launch of a record-breaking 1,000 drones from a C-130. Whoa. A swarm, a swarm can simply harass a target by flying around it, irritate more seriously by jamming radio systems and navigation, step it up a gear by knocking out a a radio mast or other infrastructure, or deliver a knockout blow of sinking a vessel, as was just demonstrated. I'd be curious. I want to know how big they are. And I want to know what kind of ordnance do they carry. But the article doesn't talk about that. The idea of this type of swarm is to overwhelm defenses by hitting them with more attackers than they can deal with. Low cost is a key feature. The idea of locust, which is a name for the swarm, is that the entire swarm will cost less than a conventional missile. The small warheads can knock out radar and other vital systems, leaving the target open to attack by larger weapon systems. There you have it. So, they take small pieces of ordnance, knock out systems, which allows another longer-range system to close with and kill it. Interesting. Interesting. So, I thought that was interesting. Then there's an article in the Wall Street Journal that caught my eye. Quote, Meditations Review, a Stoic Emperor's bestseller. Marcus Aurelius was calm confident that goodness can be attained, that we can choose virtue and avoid vice with every decision we make. So, it's a book review about Marcus Aurelius' meditations. I need to either listen or read that. Okay? Because, um, yeah, a lot of people cite that. 
right? And uh, Admiral Stockdale was uh, embraced Stoicism, studied it at Stanford, and it, it's what contributed to his leadership in the Hanoi Hilton. Why they came back with a four percent rate of PTSD when everybody else uh, in Vietnam came home with a thirty percent rate of PTSD. So, um, so that in the news, so that caught my eye as well. The um, we're going to go over the news today because I haven't done that. Somebody actually gave me a little grief over the weekend and said, "You know, you've been doing other things, and I don't know what's going on in the world, and um, you might want to pay attention to what you're supposed to do." I said, "Really, like that?" And he said, "Yeah, like that." So. Um, the United States Marine Corps band makes this morning official as I get back on track here. Good morning to you. Dedicated, uh, it's dedicated, it's dedicated to my seminars that I uh, I didn't get a chance to be a part of last week. I got to tell you that uh, didn't make me happy. Yeah, uh, I have to I have to tell you that uh, like tonight, um, you know, one of the seminars is going to happen at five thirty, and I'm looking forward to it. And I uh, yeah, I missed it. Yeah, talking to people about post-traumatic winning, listening to what's going on in their lives and, and the stuff we talk about. So uh, so excited to get to, after wake off, to get back and do that again. So this dedicated to, uh, tonight is a graduate seminar. So people that have gone through the seminar and uh, and continue to come back and want to talk about life uh, post-trauma. And then, uh, and then, let's see. And then on Wednesday, it's the second group that's going through. So, um, yeah, this is dedicated to uh, post-traumatic winning seminar groups. Fired up to, to get after that again.
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore, so young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day, and Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Yeah, winning requires operational excellence. Let me know the next time you hear that term in any kind of like hearing or anything. Tends not to be what we talk about. Check the weather around Marineland. Currently cloudy in 67 up in Quantico. Down the coast of Camp Lejeune, it is partly sunny in 80, so warmed up on the east coast. It is May, after all. 29 Palms is sunny in 72. Pendleton, partly sunny in 63. Camp Smith in Hawaii, where I did not get a chance to go. Dark cloudy and 70. Okinawa, dark I'm sorry, dark, clear, and 69. Darwin, straight up cold in Darwin. Dark, cloudy, and 75 there in Oslo, Norway. Partly sunny and 70, I'm sorry, 47. Currently at the home of Auburn Radio in Southern California, it is mostly cloudy and 63. Looking for a high of 69 degrees today, 71 tomorrow, 72 on Wednesday, 71 on Thursday and 70 on Friday. I have to tell you, man, I love that weather. Yesterday was absolutely positively gorgeous as I clip trees in the backyard. Yeah, no, absolutely gorgeous. You know, and again, to me, one of the great joys in life is to go do yard work and listen to the ball game. Don't ask me why. But um, but the um, yeah, just with the ball game on, it's the best. I have to tell you, it's uh, I don't know. It takes me back to being a kid, but you know, working outside. With uh, with the the ball game on, it's come on, it's awesome. So very very excited, exciting when I do it. And I, you know, a lot of times I'll stay in the house and I'll watch the game on TV, the Yankees in particular. And um, and on dinner I'm like, why did I do that? I mean, I love doing this. 
The um, all right. Let's go through the news. Which something I haven't done in a while. Uh, in Kabul, fear of more attacks as the U.S. military exits Afghanistan. This is from Stars and Stripes. Now the Taliban have been threatening the United States. You better get out of here. The Trump administration said May first. You better follow up on that. Right. Residents of Afghanistan's capital on Sunday expressed fears of more Taliban-fueled killing and violence in the coming months, a day after foreign forces officially began a full withdrawal from the country. Taliban attacks that focused on Afghan forces and civilians increased throughout the past year, but now many are worried that the militant group will resume attacks on foreign forces as they leave the country by September 11th. Again, why that date? Who thought that was a good idea? Good God, man. Um, so, this story documents, you know, what civilians think. Tala Harion, who owns a grocery store outside the fortified green zone, that houses NATO's Afghanistan headquarters in the U.S. Embassy, has been injured twice in nearby attacks, once by a suicide bomb, the other by a rocket. He's the father of two. He's owned the store for 28 years. He said he expects more attacks. He takes security measures, but has become largely used to the absence of security since 2001. The main thing is that you have to not think all the time about the incidents and the attacks. It's routine now. Anything can happen anywhere. Then they talk to a baker that says about the same thing. Every one of them worried about what's going to happen. And they should be. General Milley quoted over the weekend saying that uh, possible bad outcomes in Afghanistan all right. Um, another headline: Philippines protests the blocking of its of its patrol ships by the Chinese. The Philippine government has protested the Chinese Coast Guard's harassment of Philippine Coast Guard ships patrolling a disputed shoal in the South China Sea. The Philippines Department of Foreign Affairs said on Monday. It was the latest of dozens of recent protests by Manila's Foreign Affairs Office, along with increasing heated remarks by the country's top diplomat and defense chief about Chinese actions in the disputed water. The high-profile feud has escalated despite President Rodrigo Duterte's friendly stance towards China. So what's interesting about... um, about all of this is, you know, as, as Grant Newsom has educated, Duterte has long been thought of in the pocket of the Chinese. And he's tried to make good in, in a lot of different ways, you know, but the, the promised jobs that the Filipinos have been promised for their cooperation with the Chinese have never materialized. And the Chinese continue to encroach into the Filipino economic exclusion zone. Yeah. So you're seeing the foreign minister and 
their chief of defense make more and more, um, I don't know what you would call them, heated remarks relative to China. And Mr. Duterte, and, and we talked about this last week, he bloviates about defending the Philippines' economic exclusion zone, but bloviating as far as it goes. He is a great bloviator. Um, here's another interesting article. U.S. officials in the Middle East to reassure jittery allies over Iran. Now, you know, the Trump administration, there were things that happened that you looked at and said, I can't even believe that's happening. And uh, what they, what those events centered around were the Arab nations in the Middle East beginning to recognize the state of Israel, which you like never, right? And it was even rumored that on the eve of the election, Saudi Arabia was ready to recognize Israel. Now, the Biden administration seeking to reopen the door to Iran and and the Iran deal. You have our Arab allies our Arab allies um, looking at us going, (laughs) are you going to do to us what you did in Afghanistan? Which is walk away from them. Because we know you're fully capable of it. So you have U.S. officials in the region Saying, oh, what are you talking about? Us? Leave you hanging? Leave you in the lurch? Are you kidding me? Like, come on. Like, we would never do. We would never do This is, like, ridiculous. Why would why would you even say that to us? Yeah. Because we're not stupid. So, this is from... Dubai. Top Biden administration officials and U.S. Senators crisscrossed the Middle East on Monday seeking to calm growing unease among Arab Gulf partners over America's reengagement with Iran and other policy shifts in the region. The trips come as the U.S. and Iran, through intermediaries in Vienna, discuss a return to to Tehran's tattered 2015 nuclear deal with world powers that former President Donald Trump abandoned three years ago. The United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf allies excluded from the Obama era nuclear negotiations have repeatedly pressed for a seat at the table, insisting that any return to the accord must address Iran's ballistic missile program and support for regional proxies. Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, a key Biden ally dispatched overseas, told reporters in the UAE's capital of Abu Dhabi that he hoped to allay the sheikdom's, quote, understandable and legitimate concerns about the return of the landmark deal and to create a broader engagement with Gulf partners. 
What does that mean? Kuhn said close consultation with the UAE about the ongoing talks in Vienna were important, expected, and happening, adding that he hopes the Emiratis may not just be notified, but actually help. Right. So again, the dance of the Middle East, make no mistake about it, right? The dance of the Middle East is a dance very much between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. Shia Islam centered in Iran, Sunni Islam centered in um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Wall Street Journal story. Next generation of COVID-19 vaccines could be a pill or a spray. How about that? Yeah, that's good news, right? So that's out of the Wall Street Journal this morning. There's one more story in Stars and Stripes that I wanted to get to. Um, And that is a story about um, a separate line for sexual assault allegations. So the question is, so this has long been lobbied for by Kristen Gillibrand of New, of the state of New York. Okay. Frustrated because the rate of sexual assault conviction in the U.S. military is so low. So this has been going on for years with pushback from the chairman and the SECDEF saying that, no, no, it's not good to take this out of the hands of commanders. And so, you know, so you have senators opining very publicly that, you know, this is wrong and that the military doesn't know how to do this. So I've read on a number of occasions, you know, um, that the, if you do this, what's going to happen is is the conviction number will go up because many, 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 many fewer cases will be brought to trial. And that what happens in the UCMJ is commanding officers with broad discretion, right, bring cases to trial that a prosecutor would never bring. So I went looking for, um, I went looking for an article and um, this was published on March 31st, so about a month ago. Okay, and the author is a woman by the name of Catherine Cherkasky. Now, let me tell you who Catherine Cherkasky is, because I had to look it up myself. She's a veteran, former special victims prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney who specializes in sexual assault defense. She is a co-owner of Golden Law Incorporated, a national news commentator, and host of the podcast Legally Bound. You can follow her on YouTube at Legally Blondish. So that's who she is. Okay, so she's no stranger to the military, nor being working in the military uh, system. The headline says this. Military takes a tough sexual assault 
military takes tough sexual assault cases to trial. That's why its conviction rate is so low. Subheadline says this, I want nothing more than to see the eradication of sexual assault from the military and society, but not at the expense of our constitutional rights. Okay. So she does a very good job in the article of laying out, right, the problems. If you are an outsider, only loosely familiar with the concept of sexual assault in the military, then you may be susceptible to what seem to be altruistic proposals from advocacy groups and senators looking to change the laws surrounding sexual assault in the armed forces. But as a career military justice practitioner, both on the prosecutorial and the defense side, I would caution you to look closely at any proposals put forth to determine if they will actually prevent or reduce sexual assault in the military or adjudicate the case in a more, quote, fair, unquote, manner. Here's what I mean. Last week on Capitol Hill, the Senate Armed Service Committee held yet another hearing on military sexual assault. As usual, the committee hosted panelists on mainly one side of the issue, an echoing chorus of survivors, advocacy groups, and military sexual assault prevention and response leaders, all there to tell you that the military is handling sexual assault allegations wrong. I'm here to tell you they're wrong. They're not necessarily wrong about bills that would shift the charging authority for felony cases from commanders to career prosecutors outside the accused chain of command. But the proposed legislation is not the point. This part of the article is is entitled, Close Cases with Uncertain Outcomes. The military not only investigates sexual assault crimes at an extremely high rate, it also takes, quote, close, unquote, cases to trial, some that would likely surprise seasoned civilian prosecutors around the country. In fact, the military is notorious for taking cases that have been dropped by local prosecutors and sending them to court-martial. Okay, Now, read that as the commanding officer has broad discretion under the Uniform Code of Military Justice because the purpose of the UCMJ is to keep good order and discipline in, in the U.S. military. Okay, So whereas a prosecutor won't take the case, commanding officers will say, charge him and prosecute. The senators, the article goes on, the senators seemingly perplexed, perplexed by the stagnancy on the issue, wondered repeatedly why the military is unable to eradicate or prevent sexual assault after all these years. And for those cases that are prosecuted, why the conviction rates are so low. For over two hours, with this battle cry, we look at the facts, we've looked at the data, we still don't understand. The fact is, that reporting rates of sexual assault allegations in the military are higher than ever. The conviction rates are lower. Here's why. The military has a robust justice system, regulated the Uniform Code of Military Justice. That doesn't read right. 
the military has a robust justice system regulated, it should say by, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, a federal law that lays out procedures in criminal offenses. Under the code, an accused, the military term for defendant, must be convicted by proof beyond a reasonable doubt at their court-martial. This is the same standard of proof as any other criminal court in America. It is the highest burden of proof known to law. Military members are tried by military judges or panels of members who have no prior involvement in the case. If you have a low conviction rate in particular type of cases, the overarching reason should be pretty obvious. You're taking close cases to trial. This is precisely the military's formula. So instead of telling certain alleged victims of sexual assault that their cases cannot be prosecuted or will likely result in an acquittal, the military takes a wide swath of sexual assault cases to trial that vastly span the spectrum when it comes to evidentiary strength. Now that's a really important term, evidentiary strength. That has yielded an acquittal rate of nearly 93% in recent years. This isn't just good defense lawyering, nor is it some grand conspiracy to keep sexual offenders in the military without accountability. Military court-martials for sexual assault crimes are tried hard on both sides of the aisle. There are exceptional prosecutors serving in every branch of our military today, and likewise very talented defense counsel. The problem with military sexual assault is not the lack of prosecution or even of vigorous prosecution. The problem is the blurring of legal standards to encourage reporting. Quote, believe all women is one thing as a rallying cry, but it does not equate to an automatic conviction in court because the law literally requires the inverse the prosecution must prove the alleged victim's version beyond a reasonable doubt. That goes into that that word, that phrase, right? Um, what is it? Evidentiary. I've got to find it, but I won't. The real reasons for low conviction rates in classic. He said, she said, sexual assault cases could fill volumes. But think of it this way. When law enforcement receives a report of sexual assault, often the sole direct evidence of the alleged crime is the word of the alleged victim. Good prosecutors find other evidence to corroborate those claims. And in strong cases, military members not only are convicted, but sentenced to extremely harsh sentences. In other cases, no amount of of further investigation or prosecutorial skill can overcome the lack of proof that the crime actually occurred. Whether that's because it was a fabrication, a misunderstanding, or or any number of other possibilities is irrelevant to our Constitution. This last section of the article is entitled Proving Sexual Assault Isn't Easy. Today, there are hundreds of military members sitting in military confinement facilities, brigs, serving sentences of years behind bars, many from one-night drunk sexual encounters. Suffice it to say, 
there is plenty of accountability to go around. Transferring disposition authority from commanders to career prosecutors in all likelihood will not increase the number of sexual assault prosecutions. But I am hopeful that if passed, it will yield prosecutorial decisions that are solely evidentiary based without direct command influence. This model will relatedly result in higher conviction rates if that's the actual goal. But Congress and advocacy groups may still be unappeased because the reports of sexual assault will continue to rise with lower prosecution rates. So that's what I that's the point and why I read the whole thing, right? That that I want to communicate that when you begin to peel back the issue, if your only metric is is your rate of conviction, then yeah, clearly. But you can see what commanding officers do. They'll take something to court martial that a prosecutor will say, well, I'm not taking it because I can't prove it. But what commanding officers do is they say, no, it's going to, it's going to court martial. Because, right, to not do it means that you don't believe her and you put yourself in that position. So if anything in the military, I would tell you there's a bias to prosecute. Because as a leader, right, you're commanding officer. You don't want to be wearing, you know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that girl that gets aired out because you don't believe her, right? You don't believe him. And you're further victimizing a victim of sexual assault. You don't want to be that. So it's going to trial. So again, I want to read this again. Transferring disposition authority from commanders to career prosecutors in all likelihood will not increase the number of sexual assault prosecutions. I would submit to you it will lower them. But I am hopeful that if passed, it will yield prosecutorial decisions that are solely evidence-based without direct command influence. So that is this. A prosecutor will look at the, the evidence and say, yeah, it goes no further than this. What will happen is that the conviction rate goes will go up. The number of court martials will go down. This model will relatedly result in higher conviction rates if that's a, the actual goal. But Congress and advocacy groups may still be unappeased because reports of sexual assault will continue to rise with lower prosecution rates. So prosecution rates will go down, conviction rates will go up. And then they're going to come back and they're going to have another hearing about that. So why did prosecution rates go down? Answer, we simply, the evidence doesn't meet the evidentiary threshold. And these career prosecutors are telling you that we can't convict them in court. So then we'll look at this and say, so even though the process, even though the conviction percentage went up, total convictions have gone sideways. So what, what does that tell you, Madam Senator? Well, that the military was convicting the people that should have been convicted based on the evidence? Yes. And that this was a fool's errand. And one other footnote. You had commanders bringing cases 
to trial that should have never been brought to trial because they felt the pressure of being the person on the hook for saying, yeah, I can't charge that. So they charged it. So the conclusion would be what? The military has a bias towards the def- towards the accuser. And that justice in the military isn't blind. And that that low conviction rate illustrates that. Interesting, right? While the constitutional right, so she concludes the article like this. While the constitutional rights of a person accused of a crime may not be in vogue in the current cultural environment, that does not make it them any less critical. The presumption of innocence, burdens of proof, due process, fair trials, competent representations, and the like are only buzzwords until you're the one with your actual freedom on the line. Somebody resigned, what, in Brooklyn Park because that police officer, the female one, that shot that young man who yelled taser, 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 then shot him with her pistol, said, look, she will be afforded due process. He 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 resigned the next day to illustrate her point here. She goes on, when members of Congress bemoan the low conviction rates in military sexual assault cases, they are saying this, Without analyzing the specific facts and circumstances of each and every case or sitting through the trials, I believe that these people were wrongfully found not guilty in a court of law that afforded these military members the same constitutional rights as anyone brought to justice in the country. This should collectively shock us as a nation. As a woman, mother of five young children and a veteran myself, I want nothing more than to see the eradication of sexual assault from both the military and our society at large, but not at the expense of our constitutional rights, which apply to all accused of a crime in this country, even military members, and yes, even in hashtag MeToo cases. And again, her name is Catherine Cherkasky. She's a veteran, former special victims prosecutor, and current criminal defense attorney. So I thought that was interesting because it's very much in the news, right? You have the Biden administration through their Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin. He impaneled a group to study this. Their results are already back, right? Biden was inaugurated on what? You know, January 21st or something like that. The results of that are already back. You can see how deep of a study it is. Okay, and it, it's it's informed the Secretary of Defense that he needs to change this. We haven't seen any, right? I haven't seen any comment from the sec- from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so, this is the other side of that argument. Okay, and so to me, when you lay out the problem, what you have is again, every decision a commander makes now is susceptible to being Twittered. So you can become a national story if somebody takes something you've done in your unit and puts it on Twitter. 
and it gains traction for whatever reason. The facts be damned. The fury of Twitter. Right. The fury of Twitter. And so I think she does a really good job at pulling the issue apart. That ultimately what's at issue is the evidence to convict somebody. That the military does investigate at a high rate. The problem is, right, the vast majority of these involve two people and alcohol. And then he sheds, he said, she said, as she says in the article. And I think she does a good, she does a good job at laying, at laying it out. And let me just read one more thing to you. The real reasons for low conviction rates in classic he, sheds, he said, she said sexual assault cases could fill up volumes. But think of it this way. When law enforcement receives a report of sexual assault, often the sole direct evidence of the alleged crime is the word of the alleged victim. Good prosecutors find other evidence to corroborate these claims. And in strong cases, military members are not only convicted, they're sentenced extremely harshly. In, no, in other cases, no amount of further investigation or prosecutorial skill can overcome the lack of proof that the crime actually occurred. Okay. So, again, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. But it's a big story inside the DOD. Another story in the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention, and this is, this is and I talked about this last week. The headline is, Senator Tim Scott sets off a new round in the unfinished race conversation. The great unfinished conversation in America is the one about race. And right now the controversy over Senator Tim Scott's declaration that America isn't a racist country suggests that suggests that conversation isn't close to being finished. In fact, it may be getting harsher rather than easier to resolve. Yet often it it takes controversy and debate to reach a clarifying moment. And perhaps that's where America stands after a year of racial reckoning. If the upshot of the current turn is an agreement that there has been more progress on race than some on the left will acknowledge, but also further to go than some on the right will admit, well, perhaps that will amount to progress. One thing that's clear is that the terms of the conversation about race have changed. And the changes separate Americans along not just racial lines, but generational lines as well. If nothing else, a recognition may help move the conversation along. Semantics aren't always important, but in this case, they're vital. The observation, these observations come from talks with people who have thought long and hard about race relations in America and who are doing so a new among a new phase of debate. So he concludes with this. An America in an American in his or her sixties of any race came of age thinking the ideal for America was to build a colorblind society, and that the election of Barack Obama was a sign that maybe, just maybe, the country had moved into a post racial period. Both ideas feel outdated now. The searing debate over police killings of black citizens has accentuated race consciousness, particularly among 
young Americans who have grown up in a far more racially diverse society. The oldest millennials are about 40% non-white. The youngest of Gen Z are majority non-white. They are together the most community conscious and active of any age cohorts. Whites who marched for civil rights in the 60s, he adds, were demonstrating for them while these kids are marching for us. That is, their friends, colleagues, lovers, kids, neighbors, schoolmates, and so on. Americans are moving into a future with much with a much different country, one that will become majority-minority in about 2045. That will be uncomfortable for many, so the conversation about America's racial evolution isn't finished, though perhaps it is progressing. You know, again, I mean, to me, what was stunning about last week and Tim Scott was this. You know, all this talk about, you know, you have to be, what is equality? That you're not judged by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. And that you have the right to be anything you want to be. Until Tim Scott stands up and he's a conservative and he happens to be black. And then... He gets called Uncle Tim, and that trends on Twitter, and that was okay. It took an outcry from people to get Twitter to shut that off. Yet they block everybody else really quick. Any story about Hunter Biden gets clipped immediately, regardless of it's true, if it's true. So to me, I, I don't know that we're... Is that, pro- is that racial progress that a black man, a black woman can only, you know, be a black American if they're liberal and espouse certain ideas? No, that's not the concept. The concept of no matter your race, you have the right to say what you want. The concept is no matter your gender, you should be paid the same. Those are the concepts of equality. And you see this shit, and people are are okay with it. And to me, it's absolutely stunning to watch this stuff. Absolutely stunning. Um, Kim Jong-un talking about uh, U.S. in a very grave situation after um, President Biden's speech. So I don't know if you would call that saber-rattling. But... uh, that's going on. Uh, USNI's fleet tracker. Um, let's see. The Ronald Reagan is in Yakuska. The USS America, that would be, I think, the 31st Mew. They're in Sasebo. The Eisenhower is in the Indian Ocean. The Iwo Jima Amphibious Ready Group is off the coast of Ireland. The Roosevelt is up near Alaska. The Macon Island Amphibious Rarity Group is up near the Aleutians. The USS Tripoli is off the coast of San Diego. So there's an update on your fleet. Um, Blended U.S. Marine, United Kingdom Royal Air Force Air Wing aboard the HMS Queen Elizabeth will be the largest F-35 deployment to date. When the Wake Island Avengers of U.S. Marine Fighter Attack Squadron, VMFA-211, landed on the UK's 
aircraft carrier, it will mark the largest ever deployment of F-35 Lightning II joint strike fighters in the history of the program. After participating in workups last year aboard the United Kingdom's Royal Navy HMS Queen Elizabeth, the Marine Corps F-35B Squadron and the Royal Air Force's 617 Squadron, the Dam Busters, 10 fighters with the Marines and 8 with the Brits will begin a 7-month deployment in May that will take them across the Indo-Pacific region with what the Marine Corps is calling the largest 5th generation carrier air wing in the world. How about that? So uh, the Brits going to get it on out in the Indian Ocean. Nice going. You know, I bag on the Brits because of the size of their dwindling defense. But let me just say this. I don't know that as an American that you expect anybody to do things that, you know, they're not capable. The question is, are they devoting enough of their GDP to defense? Because maybe in the future, you know, we may need to draw on that investment. The same thing with the Japanese, the same thing with the Germans, right? Are you doing what you can do so that you can plug into American, you know, that you can go to war with the United States, or I think more importantly, you can help serve as a credible deterrent, right, in these situations. That, to me, is is the thing about the thing of the thing. Can you and will you serve as a credible deterrent? And so, um, good for the Brits. It would be I would like it more if it, all the aircraft were from the UK. But you know what? That's all right. It's all right. So, um, so this is good, and and so the presence of a, you know, of, of a carrier battle group in the Indian Ocean, right, is important symbolically, right. So at some point, you know, you would have American aircraft carriers operating with British aircraft carriers with Japanese you know, naval forces and possibly Indian naval forces as well as Australian naval forces. And that is symbolically extremely important in terms of message sending to the Chinese. And it's also important in terms of galvanizing the leaders of the free world to say, you know what, when we act in concert, we can truly be deterrent and we can do the things that we're supposed to do. So anyway, um, interesting stuff, I think. And top five stories in early bird. Number one, Defense Secretary Austin calls for new vision for American defense. Uh, a new vision. Hmm. Okay. What does he mean by that? Well, let me tell you what it means. This is written by Robert Burns, right? Burns used to write, I believe, for the New York Times. He's, he writes for the Associated Press. You know, pretty influential writer. This is written at uh, Pearl Har- from Pearl Harbor. Yeah, where I just was. In his first major speech as Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin on Friday called for developing a new vision for American defense in the face of emerging cyber and space threats and prospects of fighting bigger wars. Quote, 
U.S. military isn't meant to stand apart, but to buttress U.S. diplomacy and advance a foreign policy that employs all of our instruments of national power. Notably, Austin in his speech did not explicitly mention China or North Korea. Speaking with the USS Arizona Memorial and the battleship Missouri in the background, Austin cautioned that the U.S. military cannot be satisfied with believing it has the strongest and most capable military in the world. Not at a time when our potential adversaries are very deliberately working to blunt our edge. You know, I don't know anybody believes that anymore. So he may want to, like, ask around. But I think most people see America, if it does still has, has, have an advantage, right? We refer to these nations as peers. So he goes on, quote, The way that we fight the next major war is going to look very different from the way that we fought the last ones. We all need to drive towards a new vision of what it means to defend our nation. He spoke at a ceremony marking the arrival of Admiral John Aquino as the new commander of Indo-PACOM, succeeding Admiral Philip Davidson, who has been outspoken in his concerns that China is proceeding with urgency to be in a position to potentially take Taiwan by force within several years. In his departing remarks at Friday's ceremony, Davidson repeated his assertion that China is being pernicious. I'm sorry, is using pernicious behavior to challenge U.S. dominance in the region and to remake the international order in its own image. So interesting. A new vision. Uh, number two story. Vanessa Guillen, specialist, United States Army, was sexually harassed by a supervisor and she informally reported it. She was murdered, right? This is one of the stories out of Fort Hood, if I'm not mistaken. Guillen's family made these allegations last summer, but the, but at the time, Army investigators said there was no evidence to support them. The results of the Army Forces Command investigation into Guillen's chain of command at 3rd Cavalry Regiment were discussed with reporters Friday afternoon. Quote, the findings indicated that Guillen was indeed sexually harassed by on two separate occasions by the same individual soldier, said Forest Com Chief of Staff Major General Jean LeBou. The findings of the investigation were that inappropriate actions were taken by leaders of the unit when they learned of the allegations. LeBouf declined to identify the person who sexually harassed Guillen. The Army said in a statement that it was a superior non-commissioned officer in her unit. The report did not find evidence that the sexual harassment was related to Guillen's death at the hands of Specialist Aaron Robinson, who federal prosecutors say, prosecutors say killed her in an armory at Fort Hood the day she disappeared on April 22, 2022. 
However, the report did find that Robinson sexually harassed a different female soldier at Fort Hood. Robinson then killed himself with a handgun on the evening of June 30th as investigators were closing in to take him into custody. So what you have is, if you follow the story, right, and if you don't really follow the story, it looks like she was sexually harassed by the person who murdered her, that they, they ignored the, 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 the accusations of sexual harassment, and then she was ultimately murdered, which could have been prevented had they investigated it, right? So when you listen to the investigation, she reports it informally. The Army has concluded that appropriate action were not taken. That is a separate incident than the one in which she got killed in an armory by somebody else who ultimately commits suicide. So the Army has really struggled with that um, investigation. As counterterrorism mission fades, special operations find time to fix its own problems. Interesting. If you did not see the stories written last week um, by CBS News, and one of the most professional reporters you know I've ever seen is Catherine Herridge. She now works for uh, CBS News, and she does an interview with U.S. Navy SEALs. That if you haven't seen it, look it up. Let me see. Uh, if you just do a search on Catherine Herridge. H-E-R-R-I-G-E, CBS News, and then SEALs, H-E-R-R-I-D-G-E, you will find the interview. It's about, um, there's two of them. Yeah, pretty amazing. Part there's part one, and then there's part two, all right. And um, and they're pretty stunning. And what's even more stunning is is you watch them, and then what you um, you read the investigations, and what's concluded in investigation is that there is no systemic problem. Yet you watch, you listen to what these guys say. And when you watch the interviews, the interviews, they're in hooded sweatshirts, they have masks on, they have sunglasses on, and um, and their voices are altered to protect them. And these are, these are the whistleblowers. Protect them from what? So I might play those, both of them in a second. But here's the article. A sea of change is coming to special operations. After 20 years of relentless combat operations, organizations are taking a hard look at their mission sets, who is in the formation, and how the job treats them. Special Operations Command has openly discussed its imminent shift from counterterrorism to near-peer competition in recent years, but at the same time, another major shift is underway in the military writ large. A new focus on attracting and retaining women in every career field, a renewed focus on preventing and responding to sexual assault and sexual harassment, and the first department-wide effort to crack down on extremism. 
quote, I present our update to the American people with humility, Rear Admiral Hugh Howard, head of Naval Special Warfare Command, told the Senate Armed Service Committee last week. Humility sharpened in combat losses, mission failures, and imperfection. Humility that drives our sense of urgency to learn, to evolve, to come back stronger, and even more committed to the missions our nation asks of us. Howard's testimony came the same day his command unveiled a new plan for restructuring SEAL units, decreasing the number of platoons and making those remaining larger as well as intensive new screening process designed to select higher quality leaders. Quote, we are implementing innovative approaches to directly reach candidates that might not think of joining our team and how our candidates solve their first problems in the Navy alongside a diverse cohort to authentically build mental understanding, empathy, and respect. Quote, we are looking at this from a tangential view. The entire career of a special operator from initial baselining in our assessment and selection programs, also from a neurocognitive perspective, through 20-plus years in service in special operations, Lieutenant General Fran Baudet, head of Special Operations Command, told lawmakers. That includes not only tracking how troops fare in special operations careers overall, but how their experiences change them. The next ridgeline for us to look at is a partnership with Academia for Comprehensive Brain Health. Wow. Let me tell you, one of the problems is that it's not anybody's fault, right? It's their brain. And let me tell you, I don't care. And I see this relative to trauma all the time. Oh, your brain's different. We need to give you this drug and rewire your brain and all that nonsense. In every one of these problems, there's a leadership solution to it. We just don't want to go. We just don't want to listen to that, right? The leadership is they can issue is they can't go back that many times. Just like you, we talk about in policing. The leadership issue is you can't stick somebody in major cities and expose them to that kind of violence on a daily basis and not think it's going to have an impact on their lives. We just saw a trial where that is case, you know, case in point. He sits on that guy, physically connected to him, and those actions kill him. He has he has other cops saying, hey, man, and he's having none of it. So what is that? Guy's dead. He doesn't care. And, oh, now the special operations community is going to, like, go down that rabbit hole. Congratulations. Let me tell you, when you have study after study after study that finds there is no cultural problem and everybody knows there's one, there's your problem. You have leaders who won't throw it out into into the into the storefront window and deal with it. Uh, number four, top U.S. general, Afghan forces could face bad possible outcome. Now, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The... Um, Somebody just sent me a text. Hey, I want to 
I want to hear that interview. Okay. All right. Here's I don't know if I'll play the whole thing. Here's part of the first one. This is this is the start of the first interview. And again, Catherine Herridge, CBS News, U.S. Navy SEALs. You'll see the whole thing. Current and former SEALs who wish to stay anonymous. And while most of the SEALs have served with honor, we know that. They say that the bad ones tend to have outside, outsized rather, influence. Catherine, good morning to you. We're hearing that one of the guys even used the word evil and that this shift came after the bin Laden raid 10 years ago. This is very, very surprising. Good morning. Gail, we spoke with more than a dozen people who are part of the SEAL community or work directly with the SEALs who said the problems persist and they said the celebrity that came with the raid made some SEALs feel untouchable. Days after 9-11, President Bush launched a massive global manhunt from ground zero. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. A decade later, the search... Now again, you have to endure this. Okay, you have to endure this be- to listen to what the SEALs say. So, with apologies. No, she's good. Okay, she's good. But this is a this is her setting the stage for their comment. So there you have it. Ended at this compound in Pakistan, where the quiet professionals of SEAL Team Six executed the mission and were thrust into the headlines. The United States. You mean the not so quiet professionals of SEAL Team Six, right? Who, who had book deals before they even took off. This has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. We love the job. We love the community. But it has taken a wrong turn. Three SEALs, including one on active duty, sat down with CBS News on the condition we'd change their voices and hide their identities. Why the disguise? We are risking a lot to be here, risking careers, possible safety. The group told us there are bad SEALs with outsized influence on the teams. There are three groups in the teams. There's a small group on one side that is evil. They're lawless. There's a small group on the other side that stands up to them. And then there's a giant group in the middle that cowardly stays out of it, and they watch the evil guys railroad the good guys. Two SEALs recently pleaded guilty in the strangulation of Green Beret Logan Melgar in West Africa. His death has been described as a hazing incident gone wrong. I don't believe it. This didn't just happen suddenly. There were a hundred steps leading up to that. Lawlessness, narcissism, thinking they're untouchable. And there's the controversial case of Edward Gallagher, who was accused of killing a teenage ISIS prisoner in 2017. He was put on trial for war crimes, but in surprise testimony, a SEAL medic who'd been granted immunity confessed to what he described as a mercy killing. Then President Trump publicly sided with the SEAL. With Eddie Gallagher, you know that story very well. They wanted to take his pin away, and I said, no, you're not going to take it away. He was a great fighter. In the end, Gallagher was convicted of a lesser charge opposing with the prisoner's body. But I am angry. I feel betrayed. Drug abuse has been a problem, too. Around 2016, Senior SEAL Commander Jamie Sands read the East Coast teams the Riot Act. How do you decide that it's okay for you to do drugs? Two years after that dressing down, a heavily redacted Navy investigation obtained by CBS News showed six members of SEAL Team 10 tested positive for cocaine. You have firsthand knowledge of deployments where individuals have been taking drugs. Yes. Yes. 
At least one SEAL admitted his cocaine use during sniper school and on deployment. Drug use went beyond cocaine to methamphetamine, ecstasy and marijuana. Some SEALs said drug testing was a joke. I would say the majority of guys are not doing it. We've got to work hard to find the guys who are and how they're getting it around. Allegations of drinking and sexual assault got a SEAL platoon pulled from Iraq in July 2019. That same week, a memo from SEAL leadership read, we have a problem. Our lack of order and discipline comes from weak leadership and not enforcing the standards. The SEALs told us speaking up can have consequences. They showed us photos of a fellow SEAL who they say was physically beaten up by several teammates for calling out bad behavior. His leadership turned a blind eye to it, didn't act on it, and essentially gave permission to the SEALs that he accused to deal with it on their terms. Street justice, is that what you're saying? Yes. For the SEALs watching this, the one thing I would want them to think about is, where's the line for you? And if we can't all agree that wrong things are wrong, then it's just going to keep going on. The acting Navy secretary and the top SEAL commander declined on-camera interviews and told CBS News in a statement that the SEALs strive to be a highly reliable team, humble in triumph and fully accountable in failure, a humility that drives our sense of urgency to learn, to evolve, and to come back stronger in part two of our investigation. Okay, that's, that's the statement. So, I mean, pretty amazing, right? When you see an organization like this... And you have guys that are wearing masks, right, who have their faces covered like they're in the witness protection program. And they're members of the American, the elite American special operations, special forces community. I mean, you're, you're, you're watching it going, are you kidding me? Is this where this community is? You know? And the answer to that is, yeah, evidently. This is exactly where this community is. And and I'll tell you, I mean, it's head shaking. And then you see the different, um, all of a sudden you leave, um, you see our next, you see another installment of this. And you're just like, these guys are speaking with masks on. Like, what in the hell? And so let me uh, let me. This is the second part of the of this this little series. And again, Catherine Herridge is is the reporter who I think is one of the best reporters out there. I, I have great respect for what she does. Uh, uh, Brett Bear is another one. All right. So here's the second part of it. The within the ranks of the U.S. Navy SEALs, our Catherine Herridge spoke to current and former SEALs who wish to remain anonymous. And today, in part two of our investigation, we are hearing how some SEALs capitalized on the raid that killed Osama bin Laden 10 years ago this weekend. Catherine Herridge joins us now. Catherine, good morning to you. What have you learned? Well, Tony, we sat down with former and active duty SEALs who said the vast majority serve with honor, but a select few cashed in on the brand. Killing Osama bin Laden 10 years ago was celebrated in the streets. The operation by SEAL Team 6 also brought a kind of celebrity that was at odds with the tradition of being a quiet professional. They should never have said Navy SEALs did this. Eric Deming spent nearly 20 years as a SEAL and did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. I hate being in this chair talking to you right now, and I don't know if this is going to help. 
but at least it'll expose the problem. And I'm hoping this encourages good SEALs to start saying enough is enough. We became a brand. These SEALs, including retired and active duty, agreed to speak with CBS News on the condition their voices were changed and identities concealed. If we had never known the SEALs took out Osama bin Laden, you believe the SEAL community would be in a better place today? Yes. Yes. One of the first thoughts in my mind was, how long are we going to go before somebody exploits this for personal gain? And we didn't have to wait long. We just crossed the border, now entering Pakistan. Hollywood told the story of the raid in the film Zero Dark Thirty. Go, go. And CBS has aired four seasons of its own primetime series, SEAL Team. Online, former SEALs monetized their newfound fame. Take a look at these autograph photos that we bought online. Why are you shaking your head? I don't want to touch it. This is not okay. No, it's not okay. What about the quiet professional? Does that encompass? None of it. Members of SEAL Team 6 were disciplined for serving as paid consultants to a video game company. What's the problem? Exposing tactics, techniques, procedures. They expose all kinds of things of how we operate. Another was punished for writing an unauthorized account of the raid. It's not everybody doing it. Most of the guys in the SEAL teams want the books to stop. They want the movies to stop, the TV shows to stop. Why shouldn't they make some money when they're finished? Because this isn't going to Harvard to get a business degree. You serve to uphold the Constitution of the United States and to protect our country. The military and our operations, they're not for sale. We ask the SEALs why they're speaking out. There is desperation. To put it in three words, we need help. And that's why we're here. The top SEAL commander declined our interview request, but provided a statement that mirrored his testimony to Congress Wednesday. I present our update to the American people with humility. Humility sharpened in combat losses, mission failures. I'll tell you what, man. The answer to that question, why are you here? We need help. And let me tell you what's what's so awful about listening to that. What's awful about listening to that is they've gone to their chain of command for help. And they saw what happened in the Gallagher trial when the guys who he deployed with turned him in and got told twice to go away. And they were saying, look, man, we'll, we'll go outside if, if somebody doesn't talk to us about this. And then they become the bad guys. Gallagher's exonerated. The corpsman lies and says, I killed him. Bullshit. And, and they watch the good guys, right, get burned in this system that they turn to. And then they see investigations that come out of Special Operations Command and say, we don't have a cultural problem. And they're watching it going, holy shit, man. Holy shit. Now, I'll play the rest of this. This is this statement that he makes at a hearing last week. And then it's more of uh, the guy you heard from right at the start. An imperfection. A humility that drives our sense of urgency to learn, to evolve, and to always come back stronger and even more committed to the missions our nation asks of us. What's it going to take to fix the problem? It's going to take good guys in the teams staying there, fighting the good fight, calling them out, and then some outside entity coming in and doing a full review of everything. 
It's got to come from outside, and it's got to be somebody that's got some integrity. Deming, who filed a complaint over training practices, still carries the trident from his days as a SEAL. Without change, Deming shattered his own child's dreams. You wouldn't let your own son join the SEALs? I wouldn't. Was it a hard conversation with your son? You crush him. You see it on my face. And what comes next? May you watch him when he says that, his jaws quivering. Crying. Right? So, uh, again, uh, I'll put the links in, in this hour uh, broadcast. But, uh, again, H E R R I D G E, Catherine Herridge, CBS, SEALs. If you do that, you'll find. You'll find both pieces of this. And she, I mean, I, I've... Maybe I, even more significant, the Pentagon's inspector general has begun an evaluation into potential war crimes and whether special operations, which includes the SEALs, has done enough to prevent war crimes and report them if they happen on the battlefield. And Let me just tell you, when you hear those guys say the things they say, you know, why are you here? Three words, we need help. I mean... I don't know that you need to be a Mensa to figure out if if we've given those guys the support that they need. And what those guys are telling you is that the good guys are losing uh in this in the in the seals. So brutal. Um the other story I wanted to get to before I get out of here today. Um I'm making up for the fact that I haven't done the news. Uh headline top US general this is General Milley. Speaking at Pearl Harbor, actually the picture of, uh, Afghan forces could face bad possible outcomes. And uh, he made these comments yesterday. General Mark Milley described the Afghan military and police as reasonably well-equipped, reasonably well-trained, reasonably well-led. What's he really saying there? They're not very good. He cited Afghan troops' years of experience with a resilient insurgency, but he declined to say they are fully ready to stand up to the Taliban without direct international backing during a potential Taliban offensive. You know, he, I, I wonder if he would have said the same thing about the Iraqi army before ISIS rolled through western you know, Iraq, you know, how many years ago. He did an interview with Associated Press and CNN reporters flying with him from Hawaii to Washington just hours after the formal kickoff of the withdrawal. Asked if he believed the Afghan forces can hold up under increased strain, Milley was noncommittal. Quote, your question, the Afghan army, do they stay together and remain a cohesive fighting force or do they fall apart? I think there's a range of scenarios here, a range of outcomes, a range of possibilities. On the one hand, you get some really dramatic, bad possible outcomes. On the other, you get a military that stays together and a government that stays together. Which one of these options obtains and becomes reality at the end of the day, we frankly don't know yet. We have to wait and see how things develop over the course of the summer. Um, yeah. What does that sound like to you? doesn't sound very optimistic to me. So anyway, that's General Milley being put on the spot. Uh, you know, And again, he is yet to weigh in on the whole military sexual assault thing. 
Um, and, and again, I think what's instructive uh, heading out the door today is uh, what that article says. If you allow, instead of a commanding officer of a unit, um, if you create a system where that decision is now going to be made by some regional special prosecutor that handles sexual assault cases, according to her, what she says is that the conviction rate is going to go up because the number of cases prosecuted will go down because professional prosecutors will not prosecute the he said, she said cases where the evidence simply doesn't break squelch where commanding officers would prosecute it, these special prosecutors will not. She maintains that the military um, investigates vigorously, but the biggest problem is the cases where it's only two people that are involved and there simply isn't the evidence to substantiate that. That's what... And she says, and the fact that somebody else is making that decision, the only thing will change is that those weak cases, those marginal cases, won't go to trial. And therefore, while the percentage will go up, the total number of convictions will not. That's her hypothesis. So at the end of the day, what does that do for the command by taking it away? That's an interesting question. So if nothing changes, except the biggest change would be, yeah, she made an allegation or he made an allegation and it never went to court-martial, what what impact does that have on the command? And the commanding officer doesn't have any control over it. What impact does that have on good order and discipline? So that would be interesting. I haven't really thought that through. So... Again, but when you look at people that are that are informed on the issue, that have thought through it, you know, thoroughly and broadly, okay, they get to the, especially prosecutors and defense counsels, they get to the crux of the d- dilemma, and that is evidence. Where evidence exists, people get convicted. Where it doesn't exist, again, beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's what, you know, that's what it has to be. Because you don't lose your rights simply because you join the military. You have some of them curtailed, but not all of them. And and especially in cases where you're accused of a crime, you don't lose too many of your rights in that situation. It's The standard is still right convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. So anyway, um, yeah, but that... that you know, is it looks like that train's leaving from the Pentagon. The only person who hasn't who hasn't made a public statement is uh, that I've seen here recently uh, since again uh, Secretary of Defense Austin commissioned this study that was done very quickly and has already come back with the conclusion of yeah, there needs to be a separate uh, branch that handles these. I haven't seen any comment by the Secretary of Defense relative to that. So it'll be interesting what he says about the impact, you know, now that the commander doesn't deal with those anymore. 
if that is in fact going to be the case that that comes out of the Pentagon. So it'll be interested, interesting to hear what uh, he has to say. So with all that said, That'll do it. Catching up on the news. Montana one. Montana man's the one who wire brushed me. Yeah. So want to thank him for the uh, all news radio this morning. Anyway, hope you have a great day. Um, I'm Mike McNamara, the Salt Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Have a great day. Don't be afraid to change somebody's life, and if I can help, let me know. I am out. Have a good one.